Great news for performance enthusiasts. Workshop Fest is back. This year on August the 10th to the 12th. Two workshops packed to the brim with useful, practical knowledge. August 10th 2022, Advanced Reactive UI Patterns. August the 11th to the 12th, 2022, Performance at Scale, High Speed Applications on Any Device. Go to, workshopfist.dev, and reserve your spot now. What's up everyone, this is Darius Kalbarczyk, co-founder of NG Poland, JS Poland, AngularMaster.dev, and WorkshopFest.dev. Welcome back to AngularMaster Podcast. Today, we've got a special guest from Vienna, Austria. Performance engineer, trainer, consultant, enthusiast of technologies such as Angular, NetJS, RxJS, or TypeScript. He's also GDE and Microsoft MVP. Ladies and gentlemen... Michael Hlatki. Hi, Michael. How are you today? Hello, hello. I'm very good. Today, we are going to talk about workshop Performance at Scale, High-Speed Application on Any Device, which will be held in Wrocław and online from August 11 to 12. Let's get started. How to record and analyze frame charts? How to record and analyze frame charts is a good question. A better question would be what are frame charts telling us? Because then we can understand if we even want to read them, right? They are pretty pretty complicated to look at and uh, there are a lot of colors and boxes and lines and a ton of extra options. And I thought it is maybe very helpful to get more information on the performance timeline on flame charts to be more specific and see how you can uh, get your needed information out of it. Why do I believe this is so cool? Because it will help you in nearly any framework, a library, or anything that you analyze that runs uh, as JavaScript in the browser or even on the server. So um, what you can see in flame charts is basically the time the browser takes to execute some of the work that you produce over JavaScript, over your DOM structure, and over your CSS. And all this together is visualized in a so-called flame chart. It is visualized over time, so you see uh, progress from left to right. And the name flame chart comes uh, from a very old version of this chart, uh, you have to know that the early versions of flame charts were like bottom up. So the start of the execution was at the baseline and then the stack of uh, function calls that were visualized with nested boxes were, was going bottom to top. And now we have uh, a top to bottom visualization, therefore the name flame, flames or flame chart. Um, yeah. And I believe it's, it's, one of the most powerful things that you can learn when it comes to performance. As I mentioned, you can read pretty much any framework with that flame charts and uh, they give you a lot, lot of value. There is one thing that gives you even more value, which is the Chrome um, Tracing tab, I call it tab, but it is not really a tab. It is just Chrome colon dash dash tracing. And then you can get even more details out of your recordings. But I guess this goes way too far to, to do anything, um, in that, in that detail. What we will learn is the basics, uh, how to start, what's important. We will also learn how to run a recording, which means how to click the buttons and uh, stop recording and interact with your page in a way that is um, very 
specific that produces a very short recording so that you need to read and analyze a very short period of flame charts, which is um, always good if you can do that. Uh, it's also very nice to reproduce that stuff. So if you do a recording, you should also be able to reproduce that recording in nearly exactly the same way. And this is also part of this um, content block, how to record and analyze flame charts. Yeah, so next point is how to document performance issues and measure improvements. I would say documentation is the best thing you can do for yourself, but also for anybody else that tries to get some use out of your analysis. And to be honest, documentation um, is the stuff that was my game changer in how I understand these problems and how can how I can deal with those problems. I had the hardest time to make make a sense of uh, the performance chart, to make sense of the rendering pipeline of the browser and so on and so forth. So it was really a a hard time for me to understand all that stuff, learn all that stuff, and then really make practical use out of this stuff. Go to a application and figure out what I should look for, how I should look at it, and so on. Again, nothing that I will uh, teach or show in the in the workshop, but um, my game-breaking experience was uh, definitely when I read an audit, I guess, from... Paul Irish or Eddie Osmani, I'm not sure, but I read one of their performance audits and the way how this performance audit was documented, was elaborated, was really interesting for me. Why was it so interesting? Because they elaborated on their thought process. Aha, uh -huh. I believe there is this and that problem. Aha, uh -huh. I will do that next. Then I will look at this. Aha. Uh -huh. The next uh, approach failed, in my opinion, so I need to reconsider stuff. And this is um, a way how I started to think about all the different problems in a completely different way. I was the first time able to understand the mind of another person, how other people approach performance bottlenecks, approach performance problems, and how they try, like trial and error, it was really trial and error, how they trial and error to figure out what could help and what makes a good impact. And this is also the reason why a lot of my uh, performance audits that I run uh, and put online are so detailed documented. Uh, you have to know my company uh, as a main focus, of course, produces performance audits for all type of customers. And we hand over a PDF document to them that we claim is also a document, a learning document for people. It is written in exactly, in nearly exactly the way how I do my open source um, performance audits. And I can recommend that you look on our uh, GitHub repositories it's from uh, the push based account so github slash push dash based and then you will find there an audit in the repositories from the observable hq website and this is a very good demo audit that demonstrates shows showcases how um, we try to improve a website how we try to figure out what is the problem and how we try to uh, measure our improvements It is a very nice documentation and I guess it is super helpful. So I will, I will link that, of course, in the workshop, but it is open source. Everybody could just now go there, open up this uh, repository and or go to the main readme file and read a several pages performance audit, which had pretty amazing impact. We were able to reduce the load time from uh, 7.5 to 4.5 seconds and the largest contentful paint, this was a, a really nice improvement, was, was going down from 7.5 seconds to 2.5 seconds, so nearly five seconds earlier. This is incredible. And uh, as I said, everything documented and open source. Uh, so it's five seconds is a lot. 
It is really a lot. I mean, we are normally happy about 500 milliseconds, but five seconds is like exactly. brutal. It's brutal. Okay, so uh, Michael, how to detect a performance bottleneck? It really depends on what performance bottleneck you are looking for. If you already know where to look, like what exactly the problem is, it is a little bit easier for, for example, freezing frozen UIs for total blocking time and that stuff, I would definitely go for the flame charts uh, for the performance tab to like open it up and look for long tasks. You can also use the long task API to detect those long tasks in the browser console or, and this is a really nice, nice trick uh, that I recommend. You can also open up the FPS panel frames per second. And this panel is a very small uh, view that overlays the whole website normally on the top left corner of your browser. And it shows green, yellow, and red stripes. And if you have a green stripe, that means the frames come in a right order. If you have yellow stripes, the flames are the frames, the images, the, the, the paints in the browser are a little bit delayed. And if you have a red border, you know that there are a lot of frames dropped, which means it, the UI is frozen and you cannot interact with your user interface even if you would like to. And as you can imagine, those frame drops is one of the really, really bad user experiences that you can see, that you can detect in the browser. A second uh, problem that you can have could be uh, CSS rendering problems. And here again, the performance flame charts is the place where I would start to do that. Um, the third thing that I would recommend is, for example, if you want to look for memory leaks, memory leaks in terms of hanging DOM nodes or event listeners and so on, you can very easily open up the monitoring tool, the live monitoring tool to be more specific. And there you can uh, analyze the amount of DOM nodes, if they increase over time and also if they again drop. We have some nice, nice um, exercises that will show you how to measure that stuff and how to, uh, of course, also reproduce it, uh, figure out how the bottlenecks can get detected. If uh, you are sure that you have a performance, a memory leak as performance bottleneck, then you have multiple options. There is the memory profiling in Chrome and you can use it to try to detect hanging DOM nodes. but not sure if you know, but the way, way better option, in my opinion, the coolest option for detecting memory leaks in DOM is using inter, uh, Internet Explorer, Poof, using Edge, Edge and his latest uh, tools on memory debugging. <clears throat> they really makes it extremely easy to figure out where your <clears throat> memory leaks are and, of course, how the retained size and how the direct size of the hanging DOM nodes are, like how big it is, how many megabytes you have now hanging and you cannot clean up. This is, I guess, um, three of the most common bottlenecks that you can detect and three of the best tools that you can use for that. Okay, so um, first uh, is detect. And uh, now how to analyze and um, fix performance bugs. Yeah, for this uh, <clears throat> specific thing, we need to understand a little bit more of the code. And this is the first time uh, in the workshop or let's say in your uh, career when you need to understand the code a little bit better or be able to code stuff because before you were just looking at some charts and trying to understand the charts. Now with this part, with analyze and fix performance bugs, we really have to be able to see where it is, detect what it is, and then you need to be able to tell how 
to fix that specific bug. And for this, we have a couple of go-to solutions. We have a couple of linting rules and we have a couple of things that we need to learn that is basically not trivial and uh, will require uh, even more um, understanding of the particular code base of either Angular, React, Vue, or whatever framework you are using in that specific um, case. This is basically um, a more complex task. It most probably takes time. In our audits, we try to sketch uh, the performance fixes. So we will definitely demonstrate how you can uh, at least estimate where you could land with a pot potential fix, even if you don't implement it fully. Of course, this is not always possible, but in some cases it says it is possible and we will learn how to basically fake implement potential performance improvements. How about Angular's uh, brand new tools, dev tools? Yes, yes. So there is not only the Chrome dev tools, there is also the Angular dev tools. And it is a tool that records the same thing as the performance tab, just in a, it visualizes that stuff in a very specific way to the user so that it extracts only Angular useful uh, stuff, for example, we can see there how long of a change detection uh, cycle we used in components. We can see there how different um, <clears throat> components affect the, the specific bottleneck. And it is, let's say, an easier accessible way, especially for people that uh, are not used to the performance tab. This is definitely um, more helpful and it could already help you to fix a couple of pretty nasty performance problems that are related to change detection components and uh, structural directives or PEPs. The next item on the agenda, analyze memory usage and active event listeners. I scratched it a little bit already before. Um, <clears throat> One of the performance bottlenecks could be that you have a memory leak, which means that you have uh, that you hold a reference to a specific thing, which could be a JavaScript object, a DOM node, or an event listener, and you have no chance to free this event listener, which means the garbage collection process is not able to pick it up and it will hang in the browser forever. A small memory leak normally does not really harm user experience, but as you can imagine, if you have a memory leak caused by user interaction, we will most probably double the impact with every single interaction we do against or with that specific piece of the app that produces the memory leaks. Um, we can analyze the... Um, size of the <coughs> sorry of the memory usage we can for example and this is what i also rec um, recommended before use the uh, live uh, monitoring tool which is basically visible if you open up the developer tools and there are uh, three dots where you can say more tools and then you can go to performance monitor and then you will see uh, a live chart of different uh, of different pieces of your application, and one of those uh, bar charts is called DOM nodes, and another one of those bar charts it call, is called JS JavaScript Event Listeners. And I would recommend that you just open it up, let it run, and start to interact with your website. And while doing this interaction, uh, you will see that the, the, uh, um, the chart area will grow. And you can also see that the number of event listeners will grow. If you then navigate away from this one piece of the app to another piece of the app, you should normally see a drop in the height of this, uh, chart line and this is a good sign. This means that the garbage collector could 
take that uh, references and could remove them, like could free the resources and could free the memory that was used um, for that specific uh, DOM node or DOM nodes or for that specific event listeners. Um, you can also to use other tools, as I said, uh, the best thing for DOM nodes is the uh, memory leak measurement tool in the, in the Edge browser. It really replaces um, an approach that people normally do when they detect memory leaks. They do the interaction clear again, do another interaction clear again, and then see what's left. And diff basically one memory snapshot with <coughs> another memory snapshot. Um, but Edge will help you with that and will do everything automatically. And this is really a huge game saver um, if you try to work with or if you try to fix and detect memory leaks. So I can only recommend that tool. And uh, uh, you can try also the, the tool from the Chrome Dev Tools. But in this case, uh, even if I'm a huge, huge fan of Chrome Dev Tools, the Edge tool is definitely the better choice for this problem. Perfect. Blocking tasks and how to spot scripting bottlenecks. Over time, the way how people tried to measure um, performance or measure user experience changed a lot over time, as you can imagine. And there is one API that was introduced quite a while ago. It is called the Long Task API. And what a Long Task API is telling us is basically how long one specific task in my main thread, like the tasks that the browser executes, the JavaScript snippets that the browser execute, is displayed in the or is in the main thread, and there one of those tasks could take long or basically longer. How much longer? It could take longer than 50 milliseconds. And then it is marked as a long task. So this magic number 50 milliseconds is of course not random. You can read it up in the Rails uh, model where they basically elaborate on different um, things that happen in the browser and all of the different things that happen in the browser can take more or less time until the user experience suffers. One of them is animations, another one is user interactions, then we have background processes and some loading spinners. And if you, as you can imagine, animations is the most critical thing. There need to be a lot of uh, updates, paint events. Within a second to have a smooth uh, animation, then other user interactions are maybe not that critical. and and then you have uh, like really, really non-critical things like a firing an HTTP request in the background. The user will not realize it will if it will take like 50 milliseconds more or less to fire that HTTP request because there is anyway no visual feedback to it. So everything that the user interacts should be very quick, should give immediate feedback. Everything that could be done in the background does not need to have a specific quick feedback. And this is basically uh, how you can deal with long tasks. So not every long task is, def is uh, most probably a bad task. But in general, you can say avoid long tasks as much as possible. And this is not something that I say. Uh, this is something that a lot of people say. For example, this is uh, an assumption the latest core web vitals also include, they have as one of their measurements TBT, total blocking time, which is the summary of all long, of all the overtime of the long tasks that occurred in your application. And if you also are familiar with Lighthouse, in Lighthouse, we basically have also have a ranking system and some web vitals and the ranking system, if you double check it, ranks or, or, or assumes that total blocking time affects the page speed ranking by 30, 30%. So this is the biggest impact 
any measure could have in the uh, in the Lighthouse report, and therefore, if you can reduce total blocking time, you should definitely work on reducing the, top block, the total blocking time, because this will give you an increase in your statistics, in your charts, in your score of the Lighthouse score. For example, if you use Lighthouse, but also any other user experience score will gain if you reduce the total blocking time of your website. You're listening, Angular Master Podcast. Listen, code, repeat. Everything you need to know to become an Angular super developer. Let's talk about network analysis and improvement strategies. Yes. So for network analysis and improvement strategies, we can talk a lot. First, we should talk about the tool itself. Then we can talk about uh, some features that the browser provides us to fix or deal with that problems. And um, yeah, let's start with the tool itself. So in the Chrome Dev Tools, I'm a Chrome fan, so I will always refer to the Chrome Dev Tools, but other Dev Tools replay or display pretty much the same uh, information. If you look at the Chrome Dev Tools, you will see a lot of um, HTTP requests in a row in this network tab. And uh, this is basically just a list of uh, requests that you made over time. And if you want to have a more beautiful view on that, you should enable some of the network tabs uh, special settings. For example, there is a small cogwheel uh, at the very top left. And if you click that cogwheel, you will have additional options, additional checkboxes. And one of those checkboxes is the show overview and another one is the capture screenshots checkbox. And both of them are very, very important to understand how HTTP requests relating to the building, the visual building of your application. What else can you see in the table below? You can uh, see that there are a lot of different columns. You have type, domain, size, priority of every HTTP request that you fire. <coughs> and you also have a waterfall diagram. And the waterfall diagram shows you how the different HTTP requests uh, relate to each other. And so you can, for example, detect in the waterfall diagram if there are chained requests and if it is maybe possible to unchain the requests and make them parallel. You have a ultimately advanced search. You can search for kilobytes of a specific HTTP requests, font types, priorities, uh, file types. You can pretty much filter for every single thing you want. With this filter panel, I would really recommend to like have a closer look on the filter panel and uh, try to understand what you can do with it. Um, if you like, uh, you can also go there and hit control space and then you will see a list of all uh, the filter features that you can uh, use. This definitely also gives you even more power. What else can you do with the network panel when you uh, detect a problem? You can also try to fix that problem. And what um, you will see is basically that some of your requests will block rendering of your page. So some of your requests will basically request data and the browser will wait until this data arrives to go on with displaying and rendering the page. And this is most critical and stuff that you really should avoid. So uh, what you can do to avoid that stuff is you can basically go and say, I first of all make all scripts asynchronous. I want to uh, push the evaluation and execution of that script to the very end of the page when the page is done rendering. 
this will of course uh, later on download and of course also execute that script, but not at the very beginning. Um, sometimes you want to load scripts with a specific priority. So if you, especially if you load a hundred different scripts, you want to prioritize them. You want to see that you load the most important piece first and then all the un other stuff, the unnecessary things that maybe appear at the bottom of your page or maybe even on the next uh, site, on the next page of your browser. Um, you can do that with uh, specific things. You can, for example, preload and prefetch resources. Both of them load JavaScript that is useful later in time. And both of them uh, have a different priority and their preload has a higher priority than prefetch. Prefetch basically means you can load stuff that you navigate to. Preload means you can load stuff that is visible on this very page. Um, if, and I said they have a different priority, if this priority is not good enough for you, not enough to really like get the first things first and the most important things first, you can also work with another attribute and this attribute is brand new. It landed in Chrome 103, if I'm correct, and it is called the fetch priority attribute. And with the fetch priority attribute, you can um, tell the browser that one specific script that you want to load can have high medium or low priority com in comparison to the rest. And this was so far not really easy doable. The fetch priority itself really will remove all the clutter and will help us to do it with just another attribute. Um, if this is not enough, you can also dig in more. You can download your uh, network file, which is in a specific format that is called H. AR file, HAR file. And with this HAR file, you can run some analysis. For example, you put in the, in your browser, uh, and you search, uh, Google admin toolbox, HAR analyzer, something like this. And this HAR analyzer will aggregate together all, all different times for a specific domain, for a specific page, for whatever you analyze. And what I really like is that you can see in one picture how much connection time you spend. And if you spot <clears throat> that there is a lot of connection time, you can and should definitely uh, pre-connect those HTTP requests. And you should, uh, not the requests, but the domains. So you should use the pre-connect tag and um, pick the most important uh, domains and do that at the very beginning. So you don't download that stuff at the very beginning. You just tell the browser that in the future, I will request for this domain, for this specific URL, please do all the stuff necessary to have an established connection to that domain or to not have too many waiting times because they need to resolve some information over the network. And this is um, another last cool piece that I wanted to point out when we are talking about the network tab and potential features that can help you with the network speed. Uh, as a last thing, uh, not in the browser, but in the infrastructure, I want to mention that you can use CDNs, content delivery networks that really serve your content very close to the client on the edge in best case, edge CDNs, and they will provide you the data that you want to fetch a in a very close uh, manner, like they are very close to your physical machine. So the download time profits by the distance. And many of them will also help to improve it. They will serve gzipped file content, broadly compressed content. They could even make sure that your images have the right compression, the right formats. And this is uh, all done automatically and brings a really, really great benefit um, out of the box by just switching 
a little bit of things in your infrastructure. And this was, I guess, one of the last things that we have in the agenda of the performance agnostic stuff, framework agnostic stuff, where we really try to talk about browser low-level details and not too much about frameworks. Michael, thank you for this comprehensive answer. So now let's switch to Angular. Yes, so in this um, content block, we start to discuss everything that is framework-specific. Before we talked about framework-agnostic stuff, now we talk about framework-specific stuff. And our framework of choice is, of course, Angular. And in Angular, we have a specific way of detecting our changes. It is... <laughs> An interesting way, I would say, there are a couple of different things you should need to know. It's a definitely performant way, but you can do even better if you understand how this change detection system works and what you can do to improve it. So in general, when it comes to Angular change detection, you should know that Angular's change detection is a pool based change detection system that runs implicitly. So you as a developer don't need to know when and of course how to run change detection. Change detection runs automatically and this is done by zone, zone.js patching. I will come to that later on. And this is basically <clears throat> a way how The browser, how Angular realizes when you interacted with your browser in an asynchronous way, when work is finished, and it also helps you to, um, not it helps you, it helps the browser, it helps the framework to display, to update the DOM and display the changes of your DOM structure. This is a, a very interesting topic because I believe as it is implicitly happening, Not a lot of developers understand change detection in Angular. I would claim that only 2 to 4% of the people really, really understand what is happening under the hood uh, and how you can improve that. Okay, so how about change detection strategies and IV features? Okay, so change detection is run in strategies. The default change detection uh, is top-down. The uh, other one next to the default, we have a second one that is called on change detection strategy on push is also running top-down, pool-based. Also with uh, uh, zone.js, there is no, no difference there, but the difference with on push change detection strategy is that you will only re-render a component if the input binding, if the component owns an input binding, that has a change to it. And those are the two ways that you can run. The second one, change detection strategy on push, is definitely way more performant because you can skip a huge chunk of the uh, tree, of the Component tree that needs to get re-evaluated. You cannot skip the path from the component to the very top, but you can skip a lot of other things that are uh, happening uh, normally and are definitely unnecessary. Um, this is uh, a change detection mechanism in both ways that is heavily relying on zone.js and top-down <coughs> with Ivy. We basically uh, received a new feature. We received um, another mechanism that can help us to trigger change detection also without zone.js. Again, top-down, but still no zone.js involved. Um, yeah, for the change detection strategies, I guess there is not more to say right now because... Um, it is a matter of turning it on. Maybe a last thing that I want to mention, and this is, uh, again, things where we don't have time uh, for it at the workshop. You cannot assume that you turn on change detection on push everywhere and you have no problems. There will be edge cases where you want to trigger 
a change detection cycle, but due to the on-push strategy, it will not pick up the change because you did not propagate the change through an input binding. Those are edge cases that you definitely should to be aware of, but I will not have specific exercises in the workshop. I will just elaborate on them and show people how to understand those problems. Now it's time for what everyone is waiting for. Detect changes versus mark for check. This is a very nice uh, thing. And I would add one more. I would say detect changes, mark for check and mark dirty. But there are two different ways how you can run change detection from top to bottom. And one of them is called mark dirty and one of them is called a mark for check. Uh, the first one is very tightly coupled to zone.js and it is basically initialized by a user interaction, some patched API, and it marks, yeah, it is marked dirty, and it marks the very component and its parent as dirty. So it goes to the very component, marks it as dirty, and then calls mark parent as dirty, which calls mark dirty on the parent, and then <coughs> it marks the parent component as dirty, which at the end calls mark parent dirty. And as you can imagine, this process runs until... Uh, the component tree is exhausted and it ends up at the very, very top at the app component. And from there on, this process stops and nothing else happens. Nothing else happens, but as we have zone.js involved, zone.js will realize that the, there is an end of that process and it will call uh, application reference tick uh, and it will then tick the whole application. It will update from top to bottom all components that are marked dirty. And this is a top-down approach from Angular that is uh, nowadays possible. There is another, um, another API, a experimental API that is called mark for check. The Angular team most probably will remove that mark for check API in the future because it is uh, not really scalable or it has limitations, but you can already use it and you could do some experiments how Angular would perform the same mechanism without zone.js. And mark for check basically is also traversing the tree from bottom to top, marking those components as dirty, but in addition to that, in the same script, it runs also application ref tick after the animation frame completes. So it will schedule all that stuff over an animation frame, and then the animation frame completes. Uh, the script will kick in and will render top-down all the different things that are marked as dirty in Angular. And those are the two top-down ways. And the last one, and this is the interesting one, if you ask me, is detect changes. And detect changes is completely different. Detect changes will reevaluate straight away the very component on which you call detect changes. Or if you are um, a little bit fancy, you also know that there are structural directives and embedded views and that also the embedded views have an API that is called detect changes and that you can also call the uh, <clears throat> directive st um, structural directives view, uh, embedded view, and then you will not just or only re-evaluate the full component, you will only re-evaluate the one single embedded view. And this is the biggest game changer in performance that we uh, could ship with um, <clears throat> Rx Angular and its structural directives. And they are really outstanding faster than the rest. And you can really have scalable <clears throat> templates that really update only the one single piece that you need. Now something we've talked a little about before, Zone.js and ng-zone. Zone.js is so tight to change detection that you cannot really understand the stuff if you not fully understand zone.js, ng-zone, zone-flags, and all the other things that you can use. And I hope that uh, that 
zone flags is not mentioned later on because otherwise we have to skip it later on. But I will also include in that question not only zone.js and JSON, but also zone flags. So let's start with zone.js itself. Zone.js historically uh, was taken over. And again, this is stuff that I cannot really talk about in the, in the workshop, but uh, we had Dart. Uh, Dart was a language and is a language that is heavily used or was heavily used in Google. And they had a mechanism inside that is that was basically uh, here to detect the different changes over an asynchronous surface of method calls of execution scopes. And Zone.js was able to detect if there is a change ongoing and could also tell you where and when this change was, was started and ended. So Zone.js basically was aware of all asynchronous tasks in the browser back then in Dart. And uh, within Angular, they ported the whole concept and the whole idea of Dart into the browser, into JavaScript. And um, what Zone.js, the library, is doing is it is basically patching all the different browser APIs and injecting a small little script. So, for example, you call a set timeout in the browser, and um, after this set timeout call, Zone.js would know that you called set timeout. And when set timeout is done, why? Because they patched set timeout and they said, I will execute set timeout as it was before, plus... I will also sneak in a little bit snippet, a little uh, code snippet, so I can see and I can realize when a user uses this and that API, in our case, as a timeout, and how the timeout is executing and when it is executing and when it is done. So this is what you can do with Zone.js. You can also debug that stuff. You can uh, leverage a couple of other cool debugging tools from Zone.js, and all of this is framework agnostic. So if you would like to, you could leverage and use all the things right in the browser without any framework, without Angular or anything else. Angular itself is leveraging Zone.js's capabilities to run its change detection. Angular said, I want to know, uh, because synchronously there is no big deal, but asynchronously it is not so easy to see when we should update our components. So I want to use the power of Zone.js to detect all the asynchronous changes in my framework so that I can execute my change detection based on that asynchronous code snippets. And how they did it, they wrapped basically a zone instance with a service and they called that service ng-zone. And you can instantiate that service in your Angular application and you can use that service, for example, to run code outside of the zone, which means Angular or let's say the zone.js cycle will not be aware that you execute any asynchronous API if you wrap it with run outside zone or run outside Angular. <clears throat> um, as you can imagine, and now I will go a little bit more uh, in-depth and I will talk about zone flags, a hidden feature inside of the zone.js library. Um, you can now assume that all of these Patching APIs and top-down rendering and execution takes a lot of time in the browser. And in fact, it takes so much time that your apps, if they are big enough, will suffer from it drastically and will get slow, very, very slow in execution. Um, you can do stuff. Um, and one of the things that you can do without additional libraries just out of the box with zone.js itself is you can use zone flags. You can configure zone.js right before it bootstraps and tell it which of the browser APIs it should um, patch and which of the browser APIs it should not patch. And this 
Mechanism this flagging of patched and unpatched APIs is called Zone Flags. I have a couple of texts about this, <clears throat> two, three articles, and I also wrote a very nice and small helper library that makes it super straightforward uh, to use it because you can do a couple of things wrong when you want to use it. And with this tiny, tiny, tiny library, it's uh, only a couple of bytes big because it is just wrapping that small, tiny um, surface area of Zone.js. And um, it, for example, tells you when you update it after zone bootstraps because you need to do it before. It tells you how many APIs are patched, how many APIs are unpatched. It tells you in the IDE in a very nice way uh, how to use it and all the documentation and in general <clears throat> makes the developer experience on dealing with that very hidden feature uh, a lot, lot, lot more easier. And this is basically one of the things that you can do to gradually um, disable Zone.js. Of course, <clears throat> you <clears throat> still have no fully zoneless application, but it is the first step in the direction of going to a fully zoneless uh, app. So uh, it sounds really good. So it sense to go fully zoneless? It, <clears throat> as I said, it is just a, a step because we still have Zone.js uh, enabled. Um, even if you disable all patched APIs, uh, you still download and execute and patch the APIs. So there will be, uh, and at least not patch, but execute uh, Zone.js. It will make it faster, but you still have all the other downsides. So you need to do a little bit more. And in our workshop, we will uh, understand how we can um, take our app fully zoneless. What is the fastest and most easiest way to take your app fully zoneless? Um, <clears throat> which means deleting zone.js completely from your bundles, from your JavaScript bundles, from your polyfills. And the thing that I will do with you together is we will see how to replace, and there is only one thing that you need to replace, the async pipe uh, in the template, and how to leverage um, other mechanisms within the component class. For example, if you have a set interval there, it will also not update. So how you, you deal with that two scenarios, the template and the class, uh, I will provide finished tools that you can use straight away. Uh, they are included in Rx Angular. But as always, I want to teach library agnostic stuff. So I will also show you how to do it without a library, just bare uh, vanilla JavaScript and calling detect changes at the right place in the most efficient way. Um, this is definitely the thing that we can and will look at when we try to go fully zoneless. And we will also have the exercise of going fully zoneless. Uh, there is one last piece that you need to be aware of. Your app will not work because routing is heavily tied to zone.js. So your, what you need to do, and I again have a small snippet prepared for you, what you will have to do is you will have to run change detection manually after the routing is done. And I will also show you how to do that globally with application ref tick or locally uh, on the browser, on the component level by calling uh, detect changes on the change detector ref of the very specific component where, you, where, the, uh, where the router outlet is uh, sitting. Now it's time for subscription handling and memory leaks. Subscription handling and memory leaks in Angular. Exactly. Before we talked about it in uh, on how to detect it with debugging tools. And guess what? You can, of course, also detect Angular memory leaks uh, introduced due to RxJS operator subscriptions or due to promises that you just fire and uh, then forget to clean up after uh, their component destroys. And they can occur, and there is, uh, you already will know how to 
detect them, uh, how to fix them. But what I want to show you is a couple of ways how you can avoid introducing them. And there is, of course, the chance that you can do a couple of uh, things manually, which means you go to that very specific subscription and add a take until there, which will fire when the component uh, when the component destroys. But you can also use a library that is basically surfing you a take until take until destroy. I guess it is called. It will do all that magic under the hood. It is a decorator where you decorate a stuff with it, and then you can add take until to that very subscription, and then it will do the same. Uh, this is also um, ensured by running some linting rules against it, but um, I don't believe that this is the best, most convenient way because even with that, you can always introduce manually another flattening operator under your take until and then you will end up in the same situation. You maybe will clean up the uh, subscription to the previous operators, but the last one will stay open. So you need to again care about this. So what I suggest, and this is a completely different approach than all the other people go for, is you provide a dot subscribe method that you created. And this dot subscribe method is basically tied to, compo to the component's lifecycle. So no matter if you have after the take until another switch map subscription thing is thing ongoing, it doesn't matter because it will go from the very end of the chain until the top and unsubscribes from all, all other operators too. This, you will see, is a very tiny piece of code that you can implement on your own. We will implement our own uh, subscription handling service that we provide on component level and make sure everything works fine. But... If you don't want to write all that code on your own, if you want to have a fully maintained and unit tested, uh, in general tested service, you can also install the Rx effect service provided by the Rx Angular library. And there you will have a little bit more logging and of course all the other fancy benefits that this thing provides to you. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's that's it for how I suggest to detect, to do run subscription handling and avoid memory leaks. Perfect. Uh, Michael, uh, one of the most important topics, I think, performance component architecture. This is a very, very interesting one. How can you uh, align your components, your routes, your different bundles in a way that is by default, most performant. And we have a series of different suggestions that we want to walk through and implement in your application uh, that is starting with lazy loading of your, of course, routes. This will be not really exercised because most of us already know how to lazy load uh, routes, but not all of us know how to lazy load components, how to lazy load services. Um, and then it goes further how to propagate changes in your application. I will show you that the most efficient way is to really pass observables or promises directly to your components. And in this way, you can save a lot of additional change detection cycles. Um, and also we will have a couple of architectures that will have a better way to do that stuff. Best and bad performance practices of DOM structure in CSS rendering? It is basically a sum up of uh, a lot of different things that we learned in the vanilla JavaScript part. We will understand in combination with Angular, of course, how to detect um, bad or good structures in your component tree and how to detect bad or good structures in your DOM and CSS setup. So it will more or less sum up what we learned. It will give you a good repetition 
and I will hand out some um, demo showcases, some applications that you can, like, let's say, tweak the nesting level of your components, tweak the DOM structure, tweak the CSS selector depths and specificity, and you can then do uh, measures, demo measures, and can experiment a little bit on good or bad uh, structure within your components. Runtime performance of scripting, rendering, and painting. Yes, rendering and painting and scripting stuff is, uh, I call it the browser render pipeline. And in, and we will definitely walk through the browser render pipeline completely in depth. So we will understand every single step of the browser render pipeline. We will even look into hit test, <clears throat> which is basically called by user interaction and not in the default explanation of the browser render pipeline. Uh, and we will learn how to improve different steps in the browser render pipeline and how to measure uh, different steps in the browser render pipeline. So a very, very interesting part uh, that we will look at, and I guess it will maintain the most dense uh, information that you can get there. Uh, maybe overloading because it is extremely technical, but I can tell you it is giving you information that you really, really need when you want to solve and understand uh, big performance bottlenecks in your application that are not easy, not trivial to solve, not related to change detection, not related to anything that you can read up in the internet, then I always come back to my fundamental understanding of the browser render pipeline. And this is what you will get presented in that very chapter. The last point of our conversation, refactoring an application by Leverage Browse native features. We will learn a lot on library agnostic things in Angular. So how to run change detection manually in Angular, how to do this manually in Angular, how to do that manually in Angular. I will also show you a couple of my uh, life, uh, real life experiences where I uh, audited huge applications of my customers that uh, even in a fully zoneless um, setup, they introduced a lot of problems, a lot of boilerplate, a lot of stuff by doing all that stuff manually and not relying on a library. Uh, the second thing is I will show you how to uh, leverage Rx Angular for that stuff, but even then you are missing a part and this is the native browser features part. And this is what we will discuss in that chapter. So we will not talk about Angular stuff. We will see what can the browser do for us? What features does the browser offer for us to update, to speed up pretty much any framework, any library that we want without even having a close or deep understanding of that, uh, of that specific library framework or whatever in the browser. It Thank is a, a small exercise and it is also a chapter where we have a couple of different slide decks that include theory on that browser native features. Okay. Yeah, thank you so much um, for this great explanation. I have one uh, more bonus question, if I can. Do it. Uh, one biggest performance mistake, uh, like a framework agnostic, let's say. Okay, so I should name you one that is... That is okay, I will not name the, let's say easiest to solve, I will name the hardest to solve performance bottleneck that you can introduce in your application, which is not related to a framework or let's say little related to your framework. And it is basically recalculate styles. So if you understand the browser render pipeline already and you do some measurements in your flame charts, you will see purple color in uh, your measures. And this purple color is chopped into two, three, four different blocks. And the very first block, if you hover over it or read just what is written, is called 
Recalculate Styles. And Recalculate Styles is the process in the browser lender pipeline where you figure out how many DOM nodes are affected by how many styles and what should the browser paint when it is done with layouting and uh, arranging all the different things. It is uh, the hardest to solve problem. It is in some cases even impossible without huge restructuring of your DOM structure and CSS structure. But even if this is already a realized performance bottleneck, it is extremely hard to understand how and what to do to reduce that time. I will give you a small game changer now and I will give you the hard work in the workshop. So the quick answer is try to use content visibility. It's a CSS feature and it will heavily impact when you use it in the right way, heavily impact the way how your browser calculates, recalculates styles because it can skip a lot of elements that are outside of the viewport and it will update, uh, uh, in, speed up the time you spend on layouting and painting. Uh, but this is only working in Chrome and uh, in the Edge browser. So Safari, Firefox, all the other browsers, you cannot use it and therefore you need to get more knowledge and this, understanding this, is maybe one of the hardest things, at least for me, it took me most of my time to understand how those problems really look like in your DOM structure, in your CSS structure, and how to solve it. Uh, I guess one of the biggest impacts you can, or let's say most valuable information that you can learn in web performance is understanding recalculate styles. How should I prepare for this workshop to gain as much as possible? What exactly should I do? What should I read? You should, first of all, sleep a lot before the workshop because okay. uh, it will be packed. It will be packed of knowledge. I normally uh, overdo the time. So when the official end of the workshop is over, we normally still sit there for hours and discuss your custom problems, your code base, your whatever. Uh, and if there is still energy left, we go out and even do that in the evening and discuss other performance problems together in some cool location. Um, <clears throat> but there is no real, uh, let's say, preparation that you have to do. You should know how the where the dev tools are. You should most probably know where all the tabs are: the network tab, the performance tab, the performance monitoring tab. But that's that's really it. Uh, you can prepare questions. You should prepare a lot of questions. Um, and you, of course, can come with your custom code base because goal should be not to be a theoretical performance expert after the workshop, but a practical one, a real performance engineer <clears throat> that is able to write performant code front off and also fix imperformant code and detect performance bottlenecks. Michael, thanks for the conversation. It is always a great joy to meet with you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, uh, it's always a pleasure when, uh, when we hang out here in the podcast. Thank you. All our listeners are invited to visit the workshopfest.dev page and see you at the workshop. Finally, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a like and a comment to help us continue to grow.